Hey, everyone. We have a special episode with Andrew Wilkinson. Um, I'm going to tell you about him in a second. I think you're going to like this episode, but I have a huge favor. So look, Sean and I, we spend a ton of time preparing for this podcast, uh, like hours, tens of hours a week, uh, 20, 30 hours a week, preparing just for these two episodes. And I know it sounds like we're kind of shooting the shit. And in a way, we are. But we actually work so hard at it. And I need a favor from you. I'm begging you, please. Leave us a review in iTunes. So if you're listening to this on Spotify, just click, click your podcast app or whatever it's called an Android and go to the iTunes store and just leave us a review. Click five stars and then just click like, I really like it. Or leave one star and just be like, hey, Sam, you suck. Whatever. But we need reviews. And the reason why we need reviews is we go higher up in the charts. And the higher up in the charts we go, the more listeners we get. And the more listeners we get, the more ad revenue or HubSpot money we can make, which we can then put back into the show and do more stuff. If you notice, we've hired a team to create videos. We've done that because we've get, we're been getting more views and we're able to invest more into this podcast. Um, and we want to do more stuff. We actually want to go on a live tour this summer. And we want to come to you. We'll do it for free. Um, but we need to get more listeners. And the easiest way to do that is just to leave a review. I know you hear a lot of podcasts saying do this. And most of you are just like, kind of skip through this part. But for real, do it. In fact, if you do do it, and you send me an email, sam at thehustle.co, or uh, I prefer you do this, you tweet at me, the Sam Parr, and take a screenshot of your uh, review. Um, and make sure I see it. And I'm going to call all of you out. Everyone who leaves a review, I'm going to call you out. Um, I'll, I'll either do it on Twitter or I'll do this on the podcast, but I'm going to recognize you for doing it. So please make that happen. Uh, I have a feeling that this podcast is going to get listened by a lot of people. And so um, get that in sooner rather than later so I don't miss it. But go ahead and do that. Uh, and it'll be a really big deal for us. So leave a review, please. Now, let's talk about today's episode. So today we have Andrew Wilkinson. Andrew Wilkinson is uh, a good friend of ours. He's really interesting because he does everything. So basically, Andrew started with this uh, design agency called Metalab. He grew Metalab to like $50 million in revenue out of based out of Canada. And it was very profitable, something like $20, $30 million of profit on like $50 million in sales, something like that. And using that profit, he went and bought a variety of companies. And at this point, they own like 20 different companies, uh, ranging from a bakery up to different types of uh, software. So he just bought this company called Girl Boss. He uh, uh, bought a few others. And on this podcast, we're going to talk about what companies he's buying and why he's buying them. He's also done a few interesting things like... You ever read about how someone bought a lunch with, with Warren Buffett? Uh, well, he did that with a bunch of different investors. And that's really fascinating. So give the episode a listen. Uh, look up Andrew Wilkinson. And uh, he's on Twitter. He's very active. If you tweet at him, he'll reply. If you tweet at me, the Sam Parr, uh, I'll reply as well. Uh, Sean did not make this episode because Sean has a four-week-year-old baby. So that's why we're doing some of these extra episodes without him. But please, leave us a review. Let me know what you think. Abreu, how did you rate this episode? I forget what you, you gave it. I think this was definitely in the A's. We, we, we covered a lot of ground, a bunch of stuff. Andrew brought the heat, as always, a bunch of opportunities. I think everyone's going to like it. A's. Today's episode is an A. Uh, that's good. I'll take it. What, what was your favorite part? Uh, he had a ton of stuff on how he grows his network. Andrew's super smart. He has like a bunch of billionaire friends, and he kind of lays out his, his strategy of meeting all these people. And I think that's ap applicable to just about anybody listening. All right. Well, everyone, give it a listen. Please, please, please give us a review. I'm telling you, 
I'll owe you big time. And it actually makes a huge difference. And me and Sean, we read every review and we actually talk about all of them. We'll say, is this person right? Should we keep doing this? Or this guy uh, teased us for doing X, Y, and Z. Should we actually stop doing that? What should we do? So we read all of them. Leave us a review. Uh, listen up. See ya. Yeah. I feel like I can rule the world. I know I could be what I want to. I put my all in it like my days off. On the road, let's travel. Never looking back. All right. What's going on? Not too much, man. Beautiful day here in Victoria. What about you? Uh, nothing. We, uh, I've been spending all my time on this podcast trying to make it huge. We've got some really cool stuff planned, and I'm excited to see it work out. Yeah, I feel um, like you guys are really uh, ramping up. There's a new episode in my inbox like every single day. Well, what's yes, it, it's going really well. And we did the math, and we're like, if it grows, if it, if the last 16 months repeats itself, um, it'll be we'll be at a million downloads a month by like uh, December ish, uh, which is fine, which is great. But figuring out how to like hack this has been really hard, and so we're just trying to figure out how to make it huge. Well, what's HubSpot? What's their goal? Their goal. So the HubSpot has a bunch of cool stuff uh, that they're launching. Basically, like a bunch a bunch of content initiatives, including podcasts. And their goal is to reach uh, a certain number. Like I don't remember the exact number, but they they say like, how do we get to a hundred million monthly uh, re, uh, newsletter reads? Podcast listens, things like that. So 100 million monthly audience a month. And they've just done the math on, you know, if 5% of those people convert into HubSpot customers, then it makes, it pays back the acquisition or something. Well, no, that's across that 100 million. That 100 million is across all their content. Um, it's not just the hustle. And the hustle, hmm. right now, the hustle, we have close to 2 million monthly or 2 million subscribers, of which like 50, 60% open rate. So that adds to the uh, 100 million. Um, and so this podcast accounts for right now 400, 500,000. Eventually, it'll be a million a month. And then if they have other podcasts, that's another, let's say, 10 million. So then we're at 50 million. And then where's the other 50 million going to come from? And so uh, that's kind of how they're doing the math. All right, it's time for a little ad break. I got to tell you about HubSpot's HubSpot for Startups program. So if you're a startup and you're trying to grow, this thing is pretty great. You get a huge discount, 30 to 90% off on a tool that your whole sales and marketing team can use to help you scale as you grow. We use this in our companies. I think you should too. They have tons of resources. They got great customer support, tons of integration with popular apps that you use. You got to check it out. So it's the HubSpot for Startups program. You can check it out at HubSpot.com slash startups. Mm. But how's yeah. it how's it changed for you going from like staring at your PL every month, looking at the bank account, freaking out about invoices not getting paid, to suddenly going, Oh, I don't have to do that. I just have to focus on growing the audience. Yeah, so it's pretty great. Like a lot of people, HubSpot never said this, but a lot of people were like, Man, you're only gonna work there for like a few months or a year, and then you're gonna want to bail. And frankly, I'm having a great time. Um, like I think I'm meant to start a company again, and I this is my first job I've ever had, but it's been really great, and I can see myself doing this for a little while uh, because it's awesome. Like, and like let's like talk about the obvious, which is like I made money for myself, so like I can relax a little bit. I uh, it's not as hard. Like I'm working a long long hours, but it's not as hard because if I fail or screw up, like I'm not gonna like cost people their jobs. Do you know what I mean? Like if I make a wrong decision. I'm not necessarily going to lose a lot, a significant amount of money, or someone's going to have to be fired because I can't make payroll. So that the lack of stress is so good. Have you ever? Have you noticed? Have you noticed like your cortisol levels are dropping yes. and you're just more chill? Interesting, dude. Yeah, I'm like I've never, more in I've never shape. felt that. 
I've never felt that because I've always had, there's always been so many different businesses that anytime we've sold one, I've been neglecting another one for a year and then that blows up and I get all stressed out. So it's been, I've been thinking about this a lot, but I've been going from stress to stress for, man, like seven or eight years probably since we sold our, our, one of our first companies. And uh, I've been thinking lately, like I'm going like, holy crap, I got to de-stress. And that sounds really nice to not have to think about any of that stuff. Well, the way I described it, so when I describe when I like um, moved out to San Francisco and like put my stake in the ground, I'm like all right, I'm gonna figure this out. I felt like I'd been living with poor eyesight, and I finally put glasses on, and I'm like, oh, this is the world. Like, I can do anything. I could do this. I could finally see. Now, after selling, it's like a different. Put my glasses on and realize I had poor eyesight. Where I'm like to my wife now, I'm like, oh my gosh, is this how you feel all the time? Like you don't have to worry <laughs> about X, Y, and Z. What a crazy feeling! This is actually quite nice. Now, I want to put that stress level back on again eventually, but it's nice having that break. Um, and what I think about with you is, I'm envious of what you have in some regards, right? I think we're always envious of of other people, especially our friends. I'm envious that you've built this huge, awesome empire that you own nearly all of it, that you have virtually all the control. That's very most people envy you because of that. But I also think to myself, wow, Andrew also hasn't chilled probably for a minute, and that's definitely the downsides. And so, like, in order to be the best, you definitely got to wear that which you are, you have to worry, uh, carry that worry backpack a, a fair bit. Oh, yeah. It's crazy. I and mean, it's, it's so funny, like the numbers just get bigger, right? So it's like, I, you know, I, I remember in like 2012, one time we like did payroll, and we didn't have enough money. And like my business partner literally lent me money out of his personal account to close payroll, right? So we've been at that level of stress. And, you know, I never feel that now, you know, we have enough money to go for years or whatever. It's a very different thing, but there's still that feeling of like, oh, fuck, there's like 600, 700 people relying on me to pay for their meal ticket every single month. Um, and there's just constantly people problems, right? So, yeah, I've got like, you know, a lot of control and buck stops with me and, you know, a lot of the things that people might envy. But at the same time, like we've got 30 plus companies and there's always a problem to think about or whatever. And I'm realizing I'm just constantly. I think I'm addicted to cortisol and stress. And this year has been extra difficult because what I used to do is I'd work at a cafe. I'd like wake up like pounding stress, cortisol. I'd be all pumped up. I'd do like three or four hours of focused work, get all the stuff I need to get done. But then I'd go work at a cafe and my buddies would show up and we'd start shooting the shit and go for a walk and play tennis and just just kind of F off. And now with COVID, it's like I'm in a house from 8.30 in the morning until 5.00. And then I go see my kids and it's crazy that um, just the importance of like distraction, you don't get that. Like right now working remotely in a house, you just don't get those moments, uh, the automatic breaks and stuff. And so I'm realizing like, man, if I'm left to my own devices, I'll, I'll just stress to the nth degree and just keep working. Do you think and this was the last question I asked about this because I think I always try to be self-aware where it's like, oh, a bunch of dudes complaining about shit that maybe like, is it... Oh, like, great problems, right? Yeah. It, well, my reply to that is it is a great problem. It's but great problems are still problems. First world problems are still problems, but they are first world problems. But um, do you think that it will ever get not or ever not be stressful? Like you know, we you talked about Dan Gilbert last time, this uh, billionaire guy who's got all this stuff going on. You said that he was pretty calm and and present. Do you think that even a guy like him who kind of has it all or i mean people think you and i have it all i imagine but as a guy like him who we think has it all do you think that they still 
stress? I think, I think it's in, it's interesting. I think Dan's probably really stressed out or at least was because he has so many different things that he's responsible for where if he doesn't intervene, it messes up. There's different versions of really successful people though. Think about it. Like is someone who runs a private equity firm where they have this big pool of capital they oversee and they just buy businesses and they oversee them or whatever, or, or someone who like a hedge fund manager who buys stocks, right? You can have 20 employees, you invest in Apple and all these companies. And at the end of the day, Apple does well or it doesn't, and you don't influence that, right? I think the number of things you influence is what causes the stress. And I think in our business, we, we go, Oh man, if I'm not scanning the sky for, you know, issues in all of our businesses, we could lose something or mess up. And, um, I don't know. It's a, it's a double edged sword. Cause think about like, think about like your parents or old people and like they get upset about like, Oh, the neighbor moved in who, you know, doesn't want to water their lawn or someone's dog keeps pooping on their front step or whatever it is that stresses them out as much as you and I get stressed out about business stuff. So I think everyone's programmed to be stressed. And I think it's more about what tools do you have to distract yourself from the stress? Um, and if you got a lot of those, then you're happy. Okay. So let's we're gonna, here's the tool that we're going to de-stress you. Perfect segue. So for the first topic today, we are going to talk about things that both you and I have invested in. Most of them are going to be things that you've invested in. And we're going to spend... We have one, two, three, four, five, six. Okay, we're going to spend about three to five minutes, depending on how interesting they are, where each other, whoever listed it on here, will say what it is and why it's interesting. And then I want to comment and tell you what I would do if I was you and you and vice versa. Um, but I want to hear your intel or your, your, your behind the scenes look as to why you are investing in this and why it might not work and why it will work, like why it could work. And so uh, does that sound good? Yeah, sounds great. All right. The first one, you bought this company who we've had Sophia Amorosa on the podcast. You bought her old company called Girlboss. Is it just girlboss.com? Is that the URL? Girlboss.com. Yeah. And what is it? So Girlboss is like a, a like a media company for women. Um, so Sophia started it about six years ago and built up this massive following, started doing amazing events, podcasts, uh, built like a social network. And she, I met her um, when she was first starting it and she'd um, done Nasty Gal, which was like this big flame out where she built a really amazing business, was doing $30 million a year, doing online uh, e-commerce, selling or more. Uh, used clothes, doing really, really well, right? She didn't need the money and she ended up raising from venture to take a little bit of money off the table. And then the venture investors got in and were like, hey, you got to 20x this, go take risks, start retail stores. She starts the retail stores and it all blows up. A really horrible story where she had a good thing and then she risked yeah. it and then it blew up. And so she was fresh off of that. And she said, look, I'm starting this company, Girl Boss. I think I want to bootstrap it. And I, and you know, I might raise a little tiny round, but I'm not going to raise venture again. And so we ended up investing um, and following along. And she ended up raising venture again. I, I don't know what it was specifically. I think she saw like a bigger opportunity and decided to do it. And the terms were great. Um, but so she raised venture and uh, decided to build like, you know, all this stuff, like a social network for women, building an app, all these really expensive R&D projects. Um, and it got to a point where um, it just wasn't working and it wasn't venture scale. And so she sold it to these guys, Attention Capital uh, in New York. And they, they like... They're uh, Joe and... Uh, 
Nick, right? I think they're yeah, in, are they great, LA? great guys. Yeah, and Nick Bell. Uh, and they, yeah, they they basically um, they they focused on the event business. They had all these massive contracts that were booked and then COVID hit and they just got themselves into a pickle where they just couldn't, the numbers didn't make sense. They were burning too much money. They lost all these contracts. And so they nudged me and said, Hey, would you be interested in buying this? And I said, look, I, I, I will buy it only if I can just buy the assets. Cause we looked at it and we said, Hey, they've got 2 million social followers. They've got a huge newsletter, all the piece, they've got a massive podcast feed. All the pieces are there, but the cost structure, um, was venture, right? So like they had, you know, a big P and L, they had a ton of employees and we looked at it and we went, okay, what if this company had five employees? Could you run it with five employees? And is that how, how many you have now? Uh, now, now I think there's maybe seven or eight or something like that, but we started with basically, you know, one person doing newsletter, one person doing podcast, one person doing social. And then we just said, as we sell more ads, we'll hire more people. And we ran it like a bootstrap business. And so that's what we've been doing. Um, and I think, you know, Sophia, uh, was pretty nervous when we bought it, right? She's like, don't embarrass me. Uh, you know, make sure you hire the right people. And so we worked, uh, you know, in close partnership with her and she's actually been really stoked about what we've been doing. So that's been awesome. Yeah. I just, um, uh, you just, you just announced a new CEO. I think you hired yeah, a CEO. Yeah, totally. Um, all right, everyone, a quick break. Cause I want to fill you in on a little experiment that I'm doing. I've got a new project. It's called money wise. It's a personal finance podcast for high net worth people or young people who are on their way to becoming high net worth. When I made a little bit of money, I didn't even know how much money I should be spending each month. Should it be 10000 30000 50000 And I didn't really have a lot of people to ask. So I created a podcast called Money Wise because I wanted to figure out what are some of the things that people who have a lot of cash and who have a high net worth, what do they do with it? The first episode is with a friend of mine. He sold his company for $200 million when he was 31 years old. He gets super transparent about his monthly expenses, his portfolio, how it impacts his happiness, everything. And so I want you guys to check it out. It's called Money Wise. That's one word. You can find it on my Twitter bio. I'm the Sam Parr, or you can just type in MoneyWise on Apple, Spotify, and YouTube. All right, back to the pod. Hey, let's take a quick break to tell you about the HubSpot Podcast Network. If you like podcasts like this, you should check out some other cool podcasts. One is called Business Made Simple. It's hosted by Donald Miller, and it's brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network. And what he does is he makes it easy to take the mystery out of growing your business. There's an episode that you should check out called What you should put in a job description to get the perfect hire. And in this episode, Donald Miller looks at the whole hiring process and how important it is to emphasize both the, the positive attributes and the drawbacks to future candidates. And you'll learn why being self-aware as a leader will help you avoid hiring disasters. So check it out. Go listen to Business Made Simple wherever you get your podcasts. So, okay. So can, can you talk about any of the, like the size? So you have 2 million, subscri- uh, 2 million social followers. How many email subscribers? Uh, about two hundred fifty thousand. So I can't and share the the acquisition price. That's fine. Um, but it, it was it was uh you know it was let's say let's say I I felt it was a value investment based on the social followers. But if you looked at it on a P and L basis, it was like holy crap, this is a mess, right? Because it had been losing a lot of money. Okay, what would you be happy with this company in two years? Um, like how well, much monthly cool revenue? Yeah, what's cool about it is when we when we buy a business, uh, we're generally going, you know, if we're wrong about all the big opportunities and we're only right about just base hits. So like, hey, you know, we've got 250,000 newsletter subscribers. Can we sell 40 or $50,000 a month of ads on that? If we do that, we've got a good little business. 
And then if we do that on the podcast, we've got a really good little business. And then if we do that on social, again, it's bigger and bigger and bigger. Uh, it doesn't need to be huge. Based on the price we paid, it could do 3 million bucks a year in revenue and be an amazing business and give us a good return. I think it's a 20 or 30 or $50 million a year business. Once we kind of do the events, we're, we've been thinking about you know all sorts of opportunities within the business. Um, but uh, what I like about it is, you know, if we don't do well, if we don't grow it into a huge company, we'll still we'll still do just fine. So I agree with that assessment. I actually think that so long as you're mildly competent, which you are, uh, the worst case scenario is is two million dollars a year. I would say one hundred sixty thousand dollars a month. Yeah, based off of a quarter of a million email subscribers, two million um, social followers. Now. It won't wouldn't exactly be exciting, or it wouldn't be the most fun thing, and that would be a, a like if that was the worst case scenario, it'd be like, man, we really missed missed the mark on this. But you're you're not going to go out of business, and you're probably not going to lose, which is pretty good. So I, I actually agree with that uh, assessment. I think that if in ten years, if you were at thirty million dollars a year in revenue, I wouldn't be surprised. It would probably be, it would probably be fifteen. Uh, It'd probably be twenty million dollars a year in advertising and ten million dollars a year in uh, user revenue. So ticket sales, more likely than not. I don't know if you would be able to get subscriptions to this. Maybe I actually do think that there's. I know a few uh, people who have uh, female-focused communities, and they do like three million dollars a year in revenue. Oh yeah, um, I'm seeing I, like much smaller uh, communities doing way higher revenue. Like we've looked at a lot of stuff for M and A, like for even for Girl Boss and. Uh, there's there's definitely some people doing really really well with small communities. So the way I'm kind of feeling right now, like everything I look at, um, and we're I don't know if people how familiar they are with our structure, but we mostly buy majority control of businesses, and usually we're buying them from founders. And then off the side of our desk, we also do a little bit of venture investing, maybe like two or three million dollars a year. We've got an angelist rolling fund for uh, for another I think eleven million or something like that. Um, so my world is generally so buying businesses you have an 11 million dollar wait hold on you have an 11 million dollar rolling fund yeah that's crazy right yeah we re- it's, it was insane we, we literally were like we tweeted it out as like an afterthought and we raised it in like four hours it was totally insane 11 million yeah I think we're one of that's, the biggest ones I think so I think that yeah. um, you might be like the second or third biggest. I think I heard of a sixteen million dollar one, but you might, you guys might be number well, two. We might actually size it up because it, you can. It's limited just by the number of people, and if you have, yeah, uh, there's no amount. So if so, someone wants to do five million bucks, they can do that. Um, so there's who some people who are looking that? to do more. Uh, we've got uh, Angelus doing it. They administer everything, and Sorry, then who's, the, who's I, deciding? I just, well, I I decide right. So basically. I already make probably one one or two venture investments a month. And it's usually like, you know, a friend of mine emails me and says, Hey, I'm starting a company, or one of our agencies is working with a company that we think is cool or something. And I just go, Okay, well, I'll put in a hundred grand. And now instead of putting in a hundred grand, I put in five hundred or a million via the rolling fund. And I just invest my personal money into the rolling fund. Um, so anyway, so so we do venture investing. I look at that as like a hobby. It's kind of like roulette, right? It's just betting on friends, having fun, looking at companies. Um, what I'm seeing in venture is absolutely insane. So I've seen companies of um, with with a founder who's a first time founder with an idea 
and they're raising in a $40 million pre-valuation, right? Like just totally crazy stuff. And in the private market, you know, there's all this crazy, just endless money and low interest rates and stuff. And almost everything we look at is just bid up like crazy, like to the point where we look at it and we go, I don't see any world, even if everything goes right, where we can make our money back at this price. And so for most of this year, we've basically just been sitting on our hands and waiting um, and trying to find hidden value. And what I, the way I think about hidden value is like kind of like Girl Boss, where you look at the P&L and it looks like, uh, you know, oh, whoa, this is losing a lot of money. I don't know how to value this. But you look at it and go, under our ownership, what can this do? And you make a new P&L in your head where you're like, oh, I actually need five people. My only costs are AWS and MailChimp and stuff. And so we've been doing a bunch of that. Um, and then really, uh, we've just been kind of sitting and waiting and getting creative, right? And I, I'll talk about this guy, Henry Singleton, later. Um, but we really are just trying to um, you know, issue stock when it's highly valued and buy stuff back when it's cheap. And so we've been looking across our portfolio and just going like, how can we do M&A with our stock or how can we buy cheap businesses and bolt them in that people don't understand? But it's it's crazy out there right now. What? Okay, but to play devil's advocate, and this is something that I'm playing with in my head of like, what, what do I stand for? What's going to be my uh, principles for investing? And And I haven't settled on what those are yet. Although I have some guiding principles, they're not solidified entirely. And a good friend of mine, Andreessen Horowitz said, don't worry too much about valuation because whatever's hot will continue to be hot. And you're going to, like, a lot of times the valuations looking back will be like, oh, that was cheap. But then in the middle of it, it always appears to be expensive. But the real winners, it, it won't matter that much. Of course, his lens to, to looking at that is quite narrow, albeit effective, but narrow. But what's your take on that? Well, I think. I'm assuming Andrew Chen, because I know you're yeah. friends with him. Um, I think they're amazing investors, the, some of the best in venture. I think the hard part is, um, you know, if you'd taken that same approach in 1999, it'd be really hard to be a winner, right? Because you see the same kind of stuff happening where uh, historically, I think we're at an all-time high in terms of just like pre-money valuations. But back then, I mean, there was companies that were pre-revenue selling for billions of dollars and all the same crazy stuff. And the problem is that within that haystack, there's an Amazon, right? Or an eBay or a Google, but you just don't know which one they are. And so I think if you were to go out and index and buy 100 random startups in 1999, you'd probably lose money. And I'd argue you'd probably lose money today if you went out and you indexed. And I, to me, the only way I'll bet on a, someone um, at a high valuation is if I know that they're a proven operator. Like if they're a founder who's done really well historically and I have a lot of trust and think they're amazingly smart, I don't worry too much about valuation. Um, but dude, some of the stuff I'm seeing is just wacky. Just crazy, crazy stuff. Is there one thing that you're seeing that interests you a ton that you've had the chance to invest in or uh, you passed on, but you still think it's quite amazing. So you're, you're saying that like you've seen... Uh, and I have too, like ideas uh, from people who don't know what they're doing, or at least you don't know if they know what they're doing and they're these huge valuations. Is there anything that you've seen lately where you're like, oh my gosh, this thing potentially could be the coolest thing I've ever seen? Well, I think if there's one thing I've learned over the last 10 years, it's when you see something and you get lit up about it, 
ignore the valuation and just invest, right? Like it's like, there's lots of companies that I was super excited about, but I was like, oh, I'm a value investor. I'm not going to, you know, do this on these terms. Like what? And I should have. I mean, I've got, I've got the ultimate like anti-portfolio of, you know, Coinbase and uh, Slack and, you know, all sorts of other stuff. I mean, running an agency in Silicon Valley for 10 years, like you just get, you see all sorts of stuff, right? That turns out to be um, big. Um, I, I think the most thing, the thing I'm most excited about and nervous about at the same time right now is like crypto stuff. And there's a company I saw recently that I, I didn't get the opportunity to invest in, but I think is genius. So the crazy thing about crypto is like, at least theoretically, um, historically, if you are a member of a website like Reddit, let's say, and you're an early user, let's say you're the first hundred users of Reddit and you built it into something, you actually derive no value, right? You don't get yeah. paid. You're like a Wikipedia contributor. And then Reddit makes billions of dollars. Oh, I know where you're going with the, this one. For the first time ever, I could start up Andrew Reddit and I could say, hey, uh, all the people who move over from Reddit, uh, based on the number of followers you have or whatever your rankings are, I'm going to issue coin in Andrew Reddit. And as everyone moves over and posts more, you become more valuable, kind of like the BitCloud thing, right? Now, BitCloud's yeah. kind of whatever BS, but I think for the first time, social networks and network effects are actually vulnerable to this. And one of the one of the businesses I saw that I thought was fascinating was a company called Brain Trust. And what they've done is they've basically created a really nice Upwork. So it's like a you go to the website, it looks like a really well designed uh, version of Upwork. Gabe, is this Gabe? Gabe? Yes, I know yes. Gabe. I uh, I, I know he, him too. He called me uh, a year ago when he was about to launch this, and he told me all about it because he was hiring a content person. Um, yeah, I have not checked in on this. Okay, so, go ahead. So I don't know what he was doing a year ago, but basically you go to this website and it looks like, um, you know, Upwork. It's like, hey, hire contractors for design and development, whatever you need. But then it says no fees. And I was like, well, how the hell do they have no fees? That's crazy because Upwork charges like 5 or 10% of all the projects. And what they do very quietly is they have a coin. And so they have a brain trust coin and they have people who... Um, their job is to basically be a project manager on there. Those people get paid in the coin. All the transactions occur in the coin. So as you, it's almost like if Uber had issued a coin to all their early drivers, and then as they participate in the network, they get rich. And so they don't go to Lyft because they're already rich in Uber coin, right? And so it creates this lock-in and it aligns incentives. And before oh, it was always cool. this thing where it's like labor versus capital. And this is the first time it's all aligned. It's all... Um, you know, very theoretical and early. And I don't know whether it's a good time to invest right now, but it's obviously the future to me. Interesting. And so let's talk about this. So for the listeners, the guy who started this, his name is uh, Gabe. What's his last name? Asta, uh, Osteocota. Uh, he's got a, two. He's got two last names. Him and his wife. They've like hyphenated it, so I forget his full name. Anyway, he started a company Luna, called Luna Ostaseki Seski yes. or something. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. Um, he started this thing called Cal. I forget what it was called. Cal Tech or no, not uh, something um, where it was like a lead gen site for like roofers and uh, home services, and it grew to like thirty million dollars a year in revenue. Um, I don't know how, but in some way he cashed out. Maybe his partners bought him out or something like that. And he started this thing, uh, Brain Trust, about 18 months ago, I think. 
And so I actually will would email him after this and be like, "Hey, what's going on? Uh, you raisin?" Because this is really cool. Um, I think I agree with you. This is really cool, and he's a very proven entrepreneur. Now, the thing I get nervous about when it comes to people like him um, is that will they be hungry enough to make it big? I get nervous about that. Do you? I don't really think too much about that because I think we all know like, you know, you, you're going to have this exit and you won't be hungry in the same way where you're like, you'll claw someone's eyes out to, you know, to be successful. You've already become successful, but I think like over time, it's just like, you start going like, okay, I proved it once. Now I have to do it again at double the size. And it's the same thing that everyone says where it's like, what's the perfect amount of money? It's like two or three times whatever you currently have. So if you exited for 30 this time, you got to exit for 90 next time. It's just, it's just the way people seem to work. God, that's great. Um, all right, let's talk about another one. Um, let's do... All right. I'll tell you this one that I just did the other day. Um, and this one, I actually think, has more reasons why it will fail than why it will not fail, why it will win. It's called Tails. Um, let me find the URL. Uh, I don't even know. I don't remember. Uh, Tailswriters.com. So I just, I'm going to uh, text it to you. So on the surface, th- this has a lot of things that I don't like. Uh, it could it, it's kind of like an iPhone game type of thing. Um, it's pretty hit driven, but I'm interested for in this for a couple reasons. The first, basically, what it is is um, it's this technology where authors can upload their books that they've already written, and they've made it so they can turn a pre-written book into an interactive story, which is kind of interesting. Um, but I invested it for a couple of reasons. One, I've been crazy fascinated with how authors can make more money because I think books traditionally are a horrible way to make money off of someone who spends like, you know, two years of their life writing something. Like it's pretty shitty. Like the different, like our friend Jack Butcher pro- probably makes more money off his one course, which impacts probably 10,000 people than a book that is read by a million people, which is pretty this crazy is, when you think. I think this is fascinating though, because like I'm writing a book right now. Um, I don't know if I'm even going to release it. I might just turn it into a bunch of Twitter Twitter tweet storms or blog posts or something or make a podcast out of it. Or that's what's interesting too, is like when you have all that content, you can take it and put it across all the different channels, right? Like build it once, put it everywhere and monetize it across all those different places. Well, there is a legitimacy. There's a legitimacy around being able to hand someone a book and say, this is my story as I want, you know, to, to, for you to understand it. And, you know, it's like Phil Knight is. is like the man because of shoe dog, right? I agree. So that that like I don't think a book is going to go away, but I think that what you should do is write a book as like a loss leader and then do all this other stuff of which tales yeah. is one of those things. And the reason why this business fascinated me is because I think that romance novels and um anime and like entertainment like that for amongst young po- folks and particularly women, it's like one of the biggest genres there is. I mean, it's just a rabid fan base. People love this stuff. I invested in this thing because I think an author can charge like $30 for an interactive book and people will read it a lot and, uh, and consume it a ton. And there's a company in China. I'm always fascinated with how the Chinese uh, monetize content. There's a company in China called... Well, the American translation is just called China Literature. It's a $80 billion publicly traded company that does something just like this in China. And I'm fascinated with how authors can make more money. I'm fascinated with bringing uh, the Chinese um, 
habits to America. Also, the founder of this company had invested like $800,000 or something like that of his own money into the business. And I was like, Oh, that's cool. Like you're, you're, you're betting it. I'm interested. So that's a recent one I did. But there's so many reasons why this can fail. Um, it could be incredibly expensive to um, acquire users. I don't know if the users are going to even stay for that long. And uh, it could be a total hits-driven business. So this actually has a lot of reasons why it could fail. And has a couple of reasons why it could work. How the, I think the hard part about this, though, is that you've got to do all this custom work on each book. Like I get they've built the framework, but you've probably got to have someone illustrate like a comic almost for every single... So that's the technology that they've built. Is like They make it really easy for yourself, like your, the author, to uh, make it interactive. So that's like the whole point. That's like the technology behind it. But uh, we'll see if they can pull it off. It's been around for 12 months. So it's a working MVP. But uh, TBD to see if this is going to pull... They're going to pull it off. But that's one thing I've just invested in. Um, All right, your turn. What do you got? What do you want to go over? Which one? So um, we just... We just... uh, We keep investing in this business. And it's... A lot of people don't understand it. It's called Medimap. And let's talk about Medimap. So so up in Canada... Yeah, M-E-D-I-M-A-P. So up in Canada, uh, we have socialized healthcare. So the government pays for it. And if you want to get um, uh, care, you can't just call any doctor and get in, right? So there's this whole system. If you want to see a dermatologist, you have to go go to a you know a general practitioner, get a referral. It takes six months. In, in many ways, it's better because anyone who wants it gets healthcare, but the quality of care is probably lower overall. And what it's resulted in is a system where uh, a lot of people don't have doctors, and you have to go to a walk-in clinic. And there's all these walk-in clinics, um, you know, all over Canada. And um, this this guy came to me like five years ago because um, I had invested in a few other healthcare businesses. And he goes, Hey, um, I'm going to build this business called Medimap. And basically, you're going to be able to go to the website and you're going to see the wait times at every single clinic in Canada. And I was like, Well, why would the who's going to fill out the times, right? Like, how are you going to? And he goes, Well, I'm going to convince the clinic owners that they want to be on this site and they should punch in, you know, the wait times every hour. And I was like, this seems insane. Like, F off. I'm not going to invest, right? Comes back six months later and he goes, hey, I've got uh, 25% of all clinics in Canada using this. And I'm like, well, like, how did you do that? And it turns out that every single clinic every day gets 10 phone calls a minute. And all the phone calls are is, hey, what's the wait time, right? Because oh, everyone's trying to wow. go where the lowest wait time is. And so there's this huge incentive. All the clinic owners went, oh my God, I don't have to have two uh, medical office assistants. I can just have one and that that one can just punch in the wait time. So now this business has 86% of all medical walk-in clinics in Canada. And every single one has software installed, wait time software installed on their computers. So we've been investing in this business. It's been... Uh, you know, losing money and we've been building out this network, right? And our thinking is once we have the network, there's a lot of really interesting things we can do with the network. And we've started expanding that. So this is, it started as a venture investment. And then we ended up buying, uh, we now have a, like a control position in it. We're about to buy even more of it. Um, and there's a lot of models globally for this, like ZocDoc and other folks. And so now that we've got the network established, we have no competitors. Even if someone raised a hundred million bucks, I don't know how you go out and convince every clinic walk-in, walk-in clinic owner in Canada to switch to your software over ours. And so, 
we're starting to now layer in physiotherapy, naturopaths, massage, all sorts of other services. And then we're also integrating into the booking engines for all of these. And these people can pay to promote their clinic and get more bookings and stuff like that. So I'm super excited about it. And it's one of those businesses you might look at and go, you know, I don't get it. Where's the value? Um, but it's it's really, really cool. And we're super excited about it. Well, I'm, I'm on the site and I, I typed in my location. I'm like, oh, wait, they're just... Con- uh- uh, in Canada, yeah, so like I had to type, type in, in like Vancouver or something. I did. I, I just typed in Vancouver. Okay, so uh, so the way it works is I typed in Vancouver. It says Crossroads Walk-in Clinic closes at seven p.m. As of right now, they've got a thirty-minute wait time. I can click and I can join waitlist, um, and then I tell I select a, a what I'm going to tell the doctor and how I want to do the visit. Yada yada yada. So how do they make money? Does the doctor so pay right per now- lead? No, the doctor is totally free to use. Um, and the doctor can, I believe the doctor can like make a nicer profile so they can upload their logo and stuff, but we don't make any money off of that. Right. So the idea is over time, we make a stronger and stronger network and we can start to get directly like, like that one, you can click to join the waitlist immediately. Um, and uh, do that. That's all free. Um, what we make money on is when you go and you say, Oh, I want a chiropractor. Or I need to find a pharmacy and send in a prescription or something. We can do referral agreements with all those different clinics or pharmacies. But right as of right now, we haven't monetized it. Like this is like how untouched. many people work there? Uh, like five or six. It's very small. Oh, it's small, and it looks like you got like according to Similar Web, you guys are getting like a hundred ish, fifty to a hundred ish thousand uh, visitors a month. And the traffic is mostly search and direct, which is like the greatest thing ever. I mean, that's exactly what you'd want. Um, So I I imagine you aren't spending... It's a unique database, right? Like there's nowhere else you can go in Canada to get wait list times. And I can't... So you're you're probably spending $0 on advertising. Is that right? Yeah, we we've experimented a little bit with it, but we we spend very little at this point. So it's it's going Um, back to like understanding a moat. And going like, oh, this is like, no one yeah. can compete with this. We spent the last five years losing money and building the network. And now it's like, there's no way to disrupt this. And think of all the different things you can build in this. I always like to um, say, you know, we like to buy airport businesses. And an airport is, you know, there's one, there's one airport in a city. If you want to go somewhere and fly, you've got to go and sit in the lobby for an hour. And when you're sitting in the lobby, I'm going to try and sell you a bunch of stuff. So I've got all the stalls and I can put it in a massage place and I can put it in a bookstore, somewhere to sell sandwiches, whatever. And this is an airport business. And right now all the stalls are empty and we're going to start monetizing it and filling in all the stalls. That's a great analogy or a great story. Where did you learn that one? Because before you had New Zealand businesses, which I like. Where who taught I just, you? I made it up. You made it up. That's a good one. I like that one. That's really good. Uh, I'm going to steal that one. Uh, so, like, yeah, MediMap. I could see how it, this is going to work. If I had to guess, I would say you've lost maybe six million dollars on this so far. Like, uh, I would, yeah, I think that's that's a. I think exactly how much we put in. That was a good guess. Yeah, uh, I, I'm just doing the math as to you're not spending. You're probably only spending money on five or six salaries a month plus hosting, which comes out to be probably eighty-five to ninety-five thousand dollars a month. You've done it for five years. I just made that number up. So when it goes uh, back to if that was in the states, it would have been more competitive, right? Because Canada in Canada, healthcare is is um, not privatized. Not a lot of people are moving into it. And, um, and there's just not a lot of venture competition. So if we're in the States, we would have had to raise 30 million bucks, move super fast, be really aggressive, but we're able to kind of quietly go out and do this and build the network. And 
is ZocDoc the nearest competitor? I mean, ZocDoc, I think they're a multi-billion dollar company. Is that right? Well, they're only, um, they're only in the States, right? And so, um, you know, I think they would be a logical, if they ever, if they were ever to move international, they'd be a logical acquirer of Medimap. And I think that they're a great model right now. We're looking at it and going, okay, how do we roll out the ZocDoc playbook or, or find similar businesses elsewhere? I don't mean competitor, but I mean, it's the Zoc, like the most, the nearest, yeah, the nearest uh, comparable is ZocDoc. And that's a multi-billion dollar company, I think. Yeah. Um, that's pretty cool. Um, I'm looking. I, I would imagine the sh- the thing with with this company is going to be backlinks. And what's interesting about you guys is, um, I'm looking at a, I'm looking at now. You've got 750 referring domains, which is actually lower than I thought. You've got 7,100 backlinks. But here's why it's kind of actually interesting the way that you're doing it. Uh, mo- none of your all your traffic, I imagine, is going to be search. Like uh, it's going to type. You're going to someone's going to type in like this clinic wait time or this clinic phone yeah. number, and you're going to show up like don't call, just click to see the wait time. But what's weird to me is in Canada, do you guys have .gov websites? Is .gov only an American thing? No, we have that. It's like because, well, it's like .gov.ca or something. But I think because, I think we have .gov. The reason I'm asking is if this is if most of your traffic is going to come from search. You are gonna and all the if some of these clinics are I don't know how the Canadian uh, I don't know how your guys' healthcare system is but if they're a government sponsored or a government owned healthcare clinic I would imagine it would have a dot not, gov. This is the important distinction is they're not government owned they're government regulated so the way it works is Got a it. clinic up and they're they're challenging businesses because the government basically dictates how much you can charge per visit. And the government has to approve them. They have to be run by a doctor. So it's basically like you can make sliver thin margins. Um, and that's, again, why having someone calling all the time, saving money on not having someone on the phone all the time is massive for a clinic owner. But here's what I'm getting at. What I'm getting is, is this actually could be a much bigger moat than I, I realized. Because if you're getting a bunch of .gov websites linking back to you, a .gov URL is worth the SEOs out there will correct me, but something like a hundred times more valuable than a dot com. And so I'm looking at this website. If you could talk, uh, if the if the, I'm looking at your uh, uh, Medi, what's it called? Uh, Medimap. I'm Medimap. looking at the the clinics. If they all link back to you, and many of them are dot govs or dot orgs or or whatever or dot edus. If they're like, uh, you're going to have a stupid amount of backlinks. And you're going to have a significant advantage over anyone because you're just going to crush on search because Google, uh, any .govs are significantly ha- uh, higher ranked than a dot uh, a .com and a .edu. So let's say you can get a university clinic or something to refer back to you. It's going to be actually quite amazing, I think. And, and I would imagine this is the type of company that's going to be slow, 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 slow. And then all of a sudden, it's it's just good. It's just yeah. gonna be like, oh, like no one's gonna catch us. Like nobody, nobody gets this, and they go, oh, you know, there's all these virtual care, like teledoc kind of stuff in Canada. And I just keep saying, like, well, when you break your arm, you're not gonna go on teledoc, right? There, that's a this is like a certainty, like death and taxes. Certainty is people will always need physical doctors, and yeah, well, yeah virtual definitely. will be twenty percent, thirty percent, whatever. But it's uh, it's not going away. It's gonna, yeah. You you don't. You, I'm not gonna call the doctor when I have a kidney stone. Um, so what? Why don't you tell me about uh, Hustle Plus? I don't know. About I don't want to. I want to. I want to. I want to. Do you want to do Hustle Plus or can we talk about uh, bakery and then cybersecurity and then? Yeah, yeah, yeah. sure. Let's jump to is that. that. Okay. Totally. I want to talk yeah. about bakeries. So you is this the bakery that you've already bought? So no. So I own. I own a bakery. Um, 
I, when I grew up, my little brother worked at a uh, local bakery just down the street from our house. And, uh, he, uh, yeah, it was his first job. And I used, I used to go there all the time. I got to know the owner. Um, I used to help him with his computer when I was like 14 and he maybe like four years ago said, Hey, look, you know, my parents are getting old. I want to retire. I'm thinking about selling my business. And I was like, well, I don't know the first thing about bakeries, but he's got a really good manager in place. And I don't want this to go to the wrong people. Like I literally grew up going to this bakery. It's like an institution in my city. I love it. Uh, and so I said, you know, F it, I'll buy it. And so um, I bought it and now I own an Italian bakery in Delhi. And uh, it's actually a good little business. It's like that thing I always think back to of like, if all this technology stuff fails and all my stocks go to zero... I always have a bakery, uh, you know, that's, that's not going to go anywhere for 40 years. Um, but the idea with the bakery, um, so basically uh, a couple months ago, uh, some friends and I did like a paleo diet challenge and I felt amazing, but I had crazy carb and sugar cravings. Like I just wanted like a, a treat basically. And when you're doing paleo, you're not allowed any grains or sugar. And there's hacks around that, right? So you can be like, okay, I'm having a, something that's sweetened with uh, honey or coconut flour or maple syrup or whatever. Those are all total BS, right? Those all still spike your blood sugar. If you eat a spoonful of table sugar versus a spoonful of um, maple syrup, like it's pretty much maybe a little better, but equally bad for you. And so I started researching... Who, who convinced non- you otherwise? Uh, what do you mean? I would have thought that that was obvious. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people think like I talk to like, uh, you know, friends of mine and they're like, oh, I gave my kids these, these, uh, really great snacks. They're sweetened with coconut sugar. And I'm just like, dude, sugar is sugar. And like, if you were a blood glucose monitor, it's insane. So anyway, so I started researching all these non-sugar sweeteners and trying to think about how to hack this and make some snacks that I could eat. Like like stevia, aspartame, all the old, all, all that stuff. And I realized there's this whole new generation of these. So a lot of the old ones, they have like, you know, stomach problems, they cause dysbiosis or like stomach cramps and other stuff. But there's new ones that actually taste really, really good, don't cause any blood sugar spikes and are relatively healthy, um, like allulose and stevia and xylitol. And so I actually found a baker, I contracted the baker and I just said, hey, like make me five or six different things. I want to see if, you know, I can make something interesting. and uh, I started making these chocolate chip cookies and uh, you know blueberry walnut cookies and all this other stuff, and they were insanely good. And so what I would do is I would give them to my friends and say, "Hey, I baked these cookies. Let me know what you think." Uh, and they'd eat them and say they're really good. And I'd say, "Well, there's no sugar, and they don't spike your blood sugar, and they're all healthy ingredients like almond almond flour and almond butter and stuff." And so I started thinking about it, and I was like, um, "You know, everyone wants to be healthy right now." And they're used to going to a bakery and eating something unhealthy. Given the option, would they choose something that's higher end and healthy, but still tastes the same or yeah. better? So, so like, you know, think about McDonald's. McDonald's was the standard in the 90s. Now there's Chipotle. If you're a little more health conscious, you go to Chipotle. And so I was like, holy crap, like, you know, I don't really want to get in the bakery business, but this seems like a great opportunity. And so I've been working on developing all these recipes and I've started um are you making like god you are so funny so yeah so I literally I'm literally starting a bakery it's gonna be delivery only to start just as like a beta test and uh I'm calling it euphoria and uh you know the idea is basically you know tastes as good as a normal bakery but it's actually really healthy for you 
and I've worn a glucose monitor. I've done all these experiments. Are you like, doing levels? It, are you, what are you using? I'm not doing levels. I just use a Dexcom. But uh, anyway, yeah. I'm I'm beta testing it with a bunch of friends right now, and then in a couple of weeks, I'm I'm launching it on DoorDash and gonna experiment. Oh but my it's gosh, just like one of those so random, you know, when like a business just like slaps you in the face. Yeah, and you're didn't like, you? I like want it? this for myself. That's so silly. I can't believe this is so. This is very you. This is. A, I find this to be. I'm 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 very envious of you for doing this. I think this is so freaking cool. How much um, did you employ this baker full time, or what are you doing with them? You just contract. I found someone who can work part time, and uh, I'm just doing that to start. It's very like eighty twenty. I'm like, how do I you know invest as little amount of money as possible and as little time as possible to do it? So I hired a designer to do a logo and a simple website, and then I hired a baker to do the baking, and then a photographer to photograph everything, and that's it. What's your startup cost going to be? Uh, five, five or ten grand, probably maybe that's a little more than that. So funny. It's, again. This is probably a nothing, but it's one of those things like at the very least, no, I just think it's a cool. something. Yeah. It's definitely going to be a something. I mean, is it going to be like the thing? Who knows? It's definitely going to be a thing. I mean, like, you, I feel like you kind of, you, if you screw this up, you're kind of an idiot. Like, yeah. This it, well, it goes back to like if I just called it a paleo bakery, even if it was unhealthy and shitty, it would do well, right? And then you add on to that, like that, you know, the all the glucose stuff and all the other stuff that's getting hot right now. I think it's quite interesting. To summarize, I think this is such a great idea. Um, I think it will be fun. I think that it will make life worth li- like little stuff like this is life worth living, but. Maybe it could be immensely profitable. This is really smart. I have a friend named David Hauser who started Grasshopper. Grasshopper. Oh, yeah, was, I know him. Grasshopper. A lot, everyone knows Dave. He's a good guy. Grasshopper was the software company that he sold, I think, for $200 million, entirely bootstrapped. It was basically like a small business phone service. You pay $10 or something a month and you get a phone line. Um, he started this thing called Nut Butter. Is that what you know? What's it called? Uh, it's like a peanut butter pouch, right? It's like a peanut butter it's pouch. Called. It's a keto yeah. thing. Um, yeah. And the business is so much harder than a software company, but he's having so much fun and it seems exciting. Um, I think, I think like there's a, it's a double edged sword, right? So um, I, I used to always, I used to always ask people, like, you always get all these tech people who make tons of money or whatever, and you're like, well, you know, what are you doing with your money? Like, are you starting any weird things? Like, you know, I love Dan Gilbert, which I talked about in the last episode, um, because he went, how do I make my city better? Right. It's like doing the fun stuff with money. And the way I look at this is like, A, I'm scratching an itch for something I want, my friends might want, but I make my city better. And it's just a cool, you know, it's a cool, fun thing to play with, right? I think the fun part of entrepreneurship is going, this should exist and making it exist. Um, But at the same time, like I've done stupid stuff like that. Like I started a pizza restaurant and I lost $800,000 doing it. It was a total disaster. I was getting phone calls. Like, you know, we had a, we had like an alcoholic manager who was sleeping in the restaurant. Uh, You know, we had a sketchy landlord. We had like just endless stress and bullshit. And so this stuff is fun to a point. And the key that I've learned is just hiring amazing people. So I only like the beginning, like this part is fun, but I got to get out really quick. Have you heard of the barber, uh, motorsports museum and racetrack no so there's this guy in alabama where is it uh somewhere in alabama let's see it's in um 
Birmingham, Alabama, but it's in the country, I think, of Birmingham, Alabama. His name is George Barber. He's probably 80 years old now. His father, this guy's 80, and then his father started a dairy company. So like farming dairy company, just like imagine like an Alabama dairy dairy company. That's what it was. Sold it to Dean Foods for $500 million or something like that. And they were probably breaking it in throughout the entire 50-year period in which they owned it. He went with all the money. He went and started this thing called the Barber uh, Track and Barber Motorcycle and Car Museum. And he has something like 1,000 or 2,000 cars. I believe it's the largest collection of motorcycles in the whole world. And he has this world-class track where Indy cars... um, um, like Rolex sponsored Formula One uh, races take place on this. Like people from all over Europe, Monaco, all come to Birmingham, Alabama, <laughs> to start and go to, or to go to this uh, barber racetrack, and it's done so much for the community. I think he invested probably fifty million dollars to make it because it's a nonprofit, and you can look at how many assets they have and how much cash they have and uh, what their revenue is. And it's amazing. And it's similar to your bakery thing. Now, a lot of people, like, you think like, oh, how much can a car museum and a track help the community? Well, it actually helps it a ton because people all, every, everyone, I'm going to go to Barber soon and take this lesson, yada, yada, yada. And uh, that's my version of a, of, a, of a bakery or saving Detroit is I want to start like a car museum and a car track. I think that'd I, be I was talking, I was talking to a friend about this yesterday, but um. Do you remember like 10 or 15 years ago, Portland was suddenly cool, right? Everyone's saying, oh my God, you got to go to Portland or whatever. The reason Portland became cool was because of the Ace Hotel, right? The Ace Hotel was just kind of a funky hotel and had a photo booth and a good bar in it and all this other stuff. It was kind of new. And I always think, what's the Ace Hotel that you can add to your own city, right? Like in Victoria, it's like, what's the thing that people come to see? And right now it's like, uh, you know, some twee English shops and, uh, you know, there's a beautiful, uh, garden here and a few other, you know, historical things, there's nothing cool. And so I've been thinking a lot about this. Like, is it like a crazy bar or a music venue or a hotel or something like that? But what's the de- What makes this place the destination? Because I think something as simple as that can change an entire city. Um, I don't know what the answer is, but that kind of stuff is really interesting to me. Earlier, you brought up Henry Singleton. I like Henry Singleton. I've read this really good book called The Outsiders. I know that's probably your Bible. Is that right? I love that book. Okay. So The Outsiders, um, it's a great book. It's about 12 CEOs who are, quote, outsiders. The the commonalities is they're like kind of quiet. They're kind of afraid of the press. They are typically in locations like Nebraska or uh somewhere not Silicon Valley or New York, and they just get pretty good results, but they get it every single year for like 50 years. So they'll like grow something by like 20% or 15%, but they do it every year for so long that by year 20, 30, 40, it's like, oh my gosh, they're Warren Buffett. They're Henry Singleton, yada, yada, yada. Who is this guy? So yeah, and the idea is basically that they're capital allocators, which is kind of a weird nerdy term, but it basically just means they they're really good at putting their money into buckets where they can make a lot more of it versus investing in the wrong thing. And what what a lot of people miss is you can have the most innovative CEO in the world, but if they misallocate their dollars and they put it into, you know, low return R&D versus high return acquisitions or whatever, you can have a very bad result despite being very innovative and a great uh, leader and manager. Um, so Henry Singleton is like 
everyone thinks Warren Buffett's the greatest investor of all time. Henry Singleton, um, you know, I think he died in the 80s, but I'm pretty sure he actually has a better record than Warren Buffett. And nobody really knows his name. They only know it because of the outsiders. Um, There's been one other book written about him, but he basically got into these very niche, very technical fields where they would do like, um, it'd be like navigation equipment that's on like a, you know, a fighter jet or random little like diodes for, for circuitry and all this kind of stuff. But he'd find these niches where they could kind of own it or have a very dominant position in it. What's, there's this very simple, um, kind of way of thinking about um, investing. And his whole thing was when the market is overvalued and crazy, that's a great time to issue stock and to sell things. And when the market is undervalued, you want to be buying, not only buying back your own company. So if you don't own your entire company, you want to go and you know buy back more stock and you want to be investing then. And so that approach is, you know, it's very simple. It, do, it doesn't sound like rocket science, but I think it's a really important thing for people to be thinking about right now. And I think now is a great time to be scanning your portfolio or businesses and going, how can I, um, how can I basically take advantage of valuations right now and either, you know, issue stock or use my stock in my business to go buy stuff uh, or just wait for opportunities? Because right now it's like a crazy seller's market. Which is shockingly the hardest part is the not doing anything. Um, so in time, like you have far more perspective than this. You're uh, more successful than I am, and you're a couple years older than I am. So you uh, just a little everything that I am interested in. You are, but more. How are you and other people who you've met that that buy into this? How do you guys just sit and chill? Uh, how do you not do new stuff? Because I, I say to myself all the time, I'm gonna, I'm not gonna like pounce on x y and z i gotta wait i gotta wait i gotta wait i get so antsy and i can't like it's i it's hard well there's a reason i'm starting a a sugar-free bakery right like this that's the stuff that's honestly my my secret to not doing too much is i distract myself um and you know before covid it'd be distracting myself with sports and you know playing uh bridge and hanging out with friends and going on walks and stuff now it's starting businesses and they're really small little businesses they're like hobby businesses um you know it's like um me just kind of playing with 10 or $20,000 but it's enough to keep me distracted and happy and active and feel like i'm doing something but in reality i'm sitting on my hands and building up cash and what like you so you still have enough time to do that and do the e-commerce thing which for those of you who don't know Andrew I don't know how you describe it if you started it which or you owned it I don't know what the right terminology is but you have this thing that went public and is currently like I don't know what it is today but like many hundreds of millions of dollars in market cap yeah we started a business about 10 years ago um we met the founder um, of Shopify. And at the time we were running a design agency and he said, Hey, we want to launch themes on our platform. We want people to be able to sign up and have different designs they can choose from. And we'll let you guys sell, uh, these themes on the platform for, you know, 150 to $250. And so we were kind of thinking like, Hey, it's a small little Canadian company. These guys seem nice. Let's do it. And, uh, we started doing it and Shopify just grew into a behemoth. And we rode the whale and did really well. And we actually sold the business in 2013. We didn't realize how big Shopify would get. And then we bought the business back in 2019. Um, we did, did you a bunch buy of back it back from- for more than you sold it. Way more. 
Yeah, I think Damn, it was five, five times, six times. Um, so we bought it back. We we and we said like we you know we're just making a big bet. We think Shopify is going to get a hell of a lot bigger. And we made a holding company called WeCommerce, and we started buying businesses and kind of building a mini version of Tiny um, within the Shopify ecosystem. And then we took it public in December, um, and uh, we're listed on the TSX Venture Exchange up in Canada. And uh, as of right now, I don't know if this is in Canadian dollars or American, but it's $663 million market cap. I think that's US. Yeah, I think uh, Canadian. That's Canadian. So yeah. 600, yeah. $663 Canadian dollars. So it's pretty big. Um, how, but I mean, like you're saying you're like just sitting there not doing anything, just waiting, waiting, waiting. It seems like you're doing something. Well, I mean, I'm. we started this podcast by me saying I'm stressed out and busy, right? So I think... I, I don't want anyone to get the wrong idea that, you know, it's more I'm filling my time when I have it by distracting myself with this other stuff. And that all of the things I'm focused on right now, for the most part, like while I'm looking at buying businesses, everything's so overpriced that I don't want to make a swing on the wrong thing. So I'm filling the rest of my time with other things. And one of those things is not email. You told me the other day that you... um for the first time ever, which is actually shocking to me that it's the first time ever, you've hired someone or you've asked your assistant to completely manage your email. And you said something like, this is the first day I've tried it. TBD, if it actually works. Is it working? Yeah. And what are you doing? Yeah, so I'm doing I'm doing two things that are kind of interesting. So um, one, I fully delegated my email to my assistant. So um, I get I I've started getting over the last couple of years like 200 or 300 emails a day, um, and honestly, it was just making me kind of miserable. Like it was just I've I've tried all the best practices, and we even built a, a company called Mailman that basically like slows down your email and and does do not disturb on it and stuff. But it just wasn't enough, and I hit my breaking point a couple of weeks ago. I was just spending like five hours a day doing email. And I set up tech support software. I pipe my email into it and I have um, my assistant. And then we have another assistant we have in the Philippines and they basically monitor the email and they have a set of rules. So I wrote out like, if someone asks me to sign a document, send it to this person on our legal team, they'll review it. And then if they say yes, you can sign it as long as it's below this amount. Um, if someone requests an interview, go and look at the podcast, see how many follow, uh, downloads it gets. And if it's above this, you can schedule it or whatever. And so I made like 10 of these rules. And now I'm getting like 20 emails a day because the only ones that come through to me are the ones where it's a friend asking me a direct question or it's one of our CEOs or you know a go, no, go on an investment. And so it just freed me up by like two or three hours. And it's a classic example of like the e-myth kind of where you're like, you know, desperately doing all this stuff that you don't really need to be doing because you've always done it. Um, so that's been awesome. What's, um, what's, and then, what's the e-myth? Sorry, go ahead. I don't know what the, the e-myth is. The, oh, you don't know that book? Um, I've, I, I, I've seen it. I, I don't know what the myth is. I've never actually read oh, it. <laughs> the e-myth, the, the entrepreneur myth, I think it is. But um, I think that's I the it, best. I thought, see, I always thought it meant electronic. The elect, like it. No. It, it's it's an amazingly badly written book, but it's a very important message. And it was like transformational for me like 12 years ago. And the idea is basically um, when people start businesses, they don't build systems and they don't delegate, right? So 
the the uh, person who loves baking starts a bakery, and then before they know it, they're staying up until two baking, and then they wake up at seven in the morning to mop the floor, and then they're behind the till all day. They're miserable. They're stressed, and they thought they were creating this utopian business that they wanted, and in reality, it just sucks, and they're miserable. And the reason it sucks and they're miserable is because they don't delegate, they don't build process, they don't hire people. When they do hire people, they don't give them a chance, and so it's all about how to delegate. Got it. Okay. And what were you saying about the email thing? So, I, and then the other thing I did, um, which I, has been really fun, um, I, I used to like, I used to do this myself. So I used to cold email. I still do it actually. I still cold email entrepreneurs that I think are really cool and I want to meet or ask some questions. And like five years ago, I started getting emails from young entrepreneurs saying, Hey, can you look at my startup or can you give me an opinion on this? And I used to write really thoughtful responses. And then as I got more email, I just couldn't respond. And I felt really, really guilty about this. 100% and I just like, same. I'd like delete it. Sometimes I just be like delete. And other times I'd be like one line response and I'd be like, fuck, they think I'm an asshole. 100% Um, same. Dude, I've done that with some people and then I've eventually become friends with them. And you know how like on Twitter, you can see like you recognize people's thumbnail over and over. There's this one guy the other day that I've seen him talk to me all the time. And then I've been hanging out with this other person like through a friend of a friend like three different times now. And I knew his name and I'm like, fuck. You're the guy I've been ignoring. Yeah, I'm so yeah. sorry, man. I'm so sorry. I, I, I didn't realize it. I, so anyway, I do the same thing and it kills me. Well, you never know who they're going to become or they could have this great idea if you just talk to them and get on the phone. And so um, what I ended up doing, I realized I was actually doing myself a disservice by responding because I just say like, you know, this is too long. Write me a shorter, you know, question or whatever it is. You know, the douchey, like yeah, I'm too busy yeah. stuff, like, right? I don't know what you're asking. So... Now I write them back, I have a template or my assistant writes them back and just says, Hey, um, I don't respond to these via email. What I like to do is I do an, e- an AMA, ask me anything every month. And if you, if you can afford to donate to charity, um, you know, just as a way of you know, paying it forward or whatever. And so if someone's rich, if someone has a big company already, I'm like, Hey, go donate some money. If they're a first time entrepreneur, we don't expect them to. And then Chris and I just do a monthly AMA and then everyone gets to enjoy the answer we do. And so it's dude. So it's been crazy. So we, we've already donated $58,000 to charity from this. So we basically, whatever the community donates, we double it and then we donate it to a local charity. So for we've donated 58K, half of which came from people who donated. And then uh, it's probably saved me two or three hours a month of just oh, not responding wise. to these emails. So um, it's, it's like a really great hack. Should I copy that? I think that's great. Totally. Did, yeah. Did you absolutely. make that up? Uh, I, yeah, I think we made it up. That's wonderful. That is such a good idea. Where'd you send the 56K to? Have you picked your thing uh, yet? We did one. One was like a, uh, it's called Bridges for Women. I think, I think it was. Um, and it's for women that are transitioning out of abusive households. And then the other one was uh, a gym, a local gym. Some guy set up a gym for uh, handicapped people because there's no equipment for handicapped people in town. And so it's somewhere you can go and work out if you're, you know, uh, paraplegic or something. <laughs> What what's the most amount of money you've ever donated or given? Can you reveal that? Uh, I I've given away probably like three or four million bucks. I think so wow. far. Wow, that's yeah. crazy, isn't it? It's really um, it's it's really crazy, and I'm just kind of learning. I'm learning. I'm going like, how? What's the most effective thing to do? 
because there's everything from like local feel good, right? Where you can help a small number of people, but you know, you're making their life 10% better, but you're not saving a life versus if you put the money into like malaria medication or bed nets or that sort of thing in the third world. Um, you know, I think that's what I'm kind of debating right now is how to, how to be most effective with my altruism. I can't believe though, like you've given away that much money. That's a huge amount. I've like, I I haven't done really much of anything. Um, and I want to, um, the way I started was I, um, I just started doing, um, donating to science. So I'd be like, as I was researching different medical things, I'd be like, Oh, this researcher is really cool. I'm going to start donating monthly and I just fund their work. And then over time, I just put more and more into it. Um, and then, you know, over the last year, I started the Tiny Foundation. I don't know if you've seen that, but uh, about a year ago, I started doing this thing where I would just find people who I thought were smart in fields that I thought were important. And I'd say, here's a hundred to $300,000. You choose where it goes. So you donate it. It can go to your own research. It can go to a friend's, anything you think is important. And it just saves me from having to do all the diligence and work. So I'm looking at it now. Even your foundation website looks pretty badass, which is awesome. Yeah, um, we hired some really awesome designers for that. Yeah, it looks really good. So for this, um, wow. Besides just like doing good, uh, which is like the most important thing, but let's just be real. Is there anything that you're getting out of this? Um, I mean, what I get out of it is... Other than um, feeling good. Well, for example, so I, I don't I don't think I've talked about it on here, but um, I had acid reflux, like horrible acid yeah, reflux you, you for eight years. It. And uh, I started researching it and I read tons of research about it. And uh, I was like, holy crap, if you get esophageal cancer, you die. Like there's literally no treatment. And so I actually, one of the things I'm funding is a, a esophageal cancer research center at UBC. Uh, and you know, so you could argue maybe I'm trying to save myself in the future. Maybe if I get this, um, but other than that, it's a great way to meet interesting people as well, right? Like I've met all sorts of amazing researchers and um, doctors and all sorts of other stuff as a result. Um, but no, I mean, it's just I'm trying to figure out how to convert money into something other than more money and more, you know, more problems. <laughs> um, last topic, something I want to ask you about. I don't, I think it was a friend, I forget who, Nick or my friend Nick Ray, or I don't know who, I forget who, said something about how one time you bought a charity dinner or charity lunch with uh, Ackman, Bill Ackman. Um, and at the time, everyone like made fun of you, like, who's this idiot from Canada that would spend $50,000 on a lunch? I mean, they don't realize that that money actually goes to a charity as well. But they're like, Oh my gosh, like this is so stupid. Yada, yada, yada. Turns out you actually became friends with Bill. I think, uh, I don't know him, but I'm going to call him Bill. Like I do. And you guys have like done business together. And I'm sure you've made that money back many times over, but you have this interesting way of networking. You have this interesting way of getting your foot in the door. One time, on this podcast, you've told a story about Warren Buffett. You've told you've told me uh, a couple people that you've been hanging out with, like in like you've had you're like, oh my gosh, I just did a Zoom with X, Y, and Z, and they're like pretty big deal people. What is your whole thing about networking? I mean, you're just talking about cold emailing. What what you have this weird philosophy about this? Yeah, so I'm gonna first to start with. I think networking is really fun if you're an extrovert. 
and I'm an extreme extrovert, right? So when I feel depressed or sad, I want to be around people. I want to share my problems. I want to connect with people, right? So, so I, by default, do this. Um, and I would say like starting about 15 years ago, um, I just started, I started seeing all these interesting people on the internet and going, wow, they seem amazing. Like I want to do business with them. I want to become friends with them. And specifically, there was all these people in New York um, who are big Tumblr users who just seem super cool. Uh, you know, the founders of College Humor and Vimeo and all, all those people. And so I started, uh, I started doing a couple of things. One of them was I never eat alone. So pre-COVID, I'd always have lunch with somebody, usually locally. Um, and I'd almost always do at least one call with a random person who I either haven't met or I'm just building a relationship with, even if it's like 30 minutes first thing in the morning. Um, the other thing I did is I started paying to be in the right room. So I remember telling someone 10 years ago, I wasn't doing super well, right? I maybe was doing 15, 20K a month of revenue uh, or something like that. And I paid $10,000 to go to the TED conference. And all my friends were like, what the hell are you thinking? You're spending all this money on this. When I went to the TED... I have this whole thing about paying to be in the right room, right? So... Um, when you go to TED, it's like a secret club. If you get into TED, every single person that's there is someone interesting. Um, and at the very least, they've paid a lot of money to be there. So they're legit. And being in the room, if you're in the room, everyone goes, oh, they're legit too. And so I was this like twerp with this tiny little business. And I'm talking to Al Gore and the founders of Google and you know all these amazing people. And just being in a room with those people, you naturally, over the course of going consistently for years, you end up meeting all these amazing people and making connections. You end up doing business with them. And so my doing that, just going to TED and probably spending 30K on, on tickets for three years, I think it ended up resulting in 10 or $20 million of, of revenue for my various businesses. And so I'm a big fan of doing that. The other thing I like to do is host events. So I try and bring someone really interesting uh, to town in Victoria. And then I invite a whole bunch of other people who I think are interesting. And then by doing that, um, you know, you've you've basically made this collection of people where you're the host and you know, you're kind of in charge of of the whole group and you get to meet the speaker and other stuff. And so an example of that is I thought uh, Shane Parrish from Farnham Street was super interesting and brought him out to do a speaking event, brought out all my favorite people from Victoria and elsewhere. And uh, I ended up becoming friends with Shane. And now Shane is an investor with us. and We've done a whole bunch of deals and he's a good friend. And so um, I think like one of the, uh, one of the, there's just one of the things no one recognizes is there's, an insane amount of optionality and upside and just knowing great people, both personally, you know, you make great friends, but uh, when you have a problem or you want to build a business or you need investors, being able to call a bunch of amazing people is the ultimate hack. Um, and so, yeah, that same thing happened with Bill. I went into that charity lunch, uh, you know, actually looking at it as like a kind of a diligence thing. I'd invested in his, uh, his company and I was going, well, if I don't like them, I'll sell it. And if I like no them, I'll hold way. it. Oh yeah, my yeah, God. yeah, yeah, yeah. How no, much no, no. money had you invested? Wait, wait, uh, uh, what was it called? Focus? I had, I had <laughs> like $5 million, $5 million invested in his uh, holding company, Pershing Square Holdings. Pershing, and yeah. Yeah. And I don't do... Wait, he's not a tech guy. How long guy. ago was this? I mean, he's, that... not, he's, not a, he's not a tech guy. Like, what? Well, I had no... I honestly didn't really think of it as like, oh, this is super strategic. How I was going like, you? he's a really smart investor. This was in 20... 
2017, I think, or 2016. And, and so that, how many years? That was a four or five. That was five years yeah. ago. So you were like, what, 30, 31? Yeah, 31 or so. Um, uh, $5 million, no matter what, is a lot of money. But at 31, that must have been a significant amount of your, of your wealth. Um, it is my largest investment outside of the tech businesses. And you put it all in that, in his fund? Well, I saw it was basically like Bill Bill had a series of um, challenging investments. And so his stock traded way down. And when I looked at it, I was like, okay, I can buy a dollar of amazing stock. So, so it's really simple. It's a holding company that owned about 10 stocks. And if you looked at the stocks, it was like Lowe's, Howard Hughes Corp, which is like a real estate business, Chipotle, like really good blue chip businesses. And for every dollar of stock that was sitting in the holding company, you could buy it for 65 cents because the stock had traded down so much. So it was like buying a dollar for 65 cents. So I didn't necessarily think Bill was a you know genius. I thought he was a very smart investor. Uh, I just thought it was a very cheap stock. And so I bought it. And then when I saw this charity lunch come up, I was like, oh, sweet. I can like grill this guy and see if I like him. And the upside is uh, 57 grand. And the upside is he's just a really smart investor and maybe I can learn something from him, but he doesn't invest in tech or at least I didn't know he did. So I had no, like, I didn't think I'd be doing business with him. It was like a pinch me moment when, you know, we ended up investing in stuff together. Um, what happened to the the stock? Uh, it went up a lot. Uh, it went up, it doubled or more, tripled or something since I bought it. So it's it's done really well. It's tripled. So the five million went to fifteen in a matter of six years. Uh, I, I think. I think I actually. It might have been twenty eighteen. It's either twenty seventeen or twenty eighteen. I had lunch. It doesn't with them. matter. So it, it, over the la- over the last few few years, it it traded way up. He's done. He's done amazingly well. I don't know if you saw. I think you guys talked about it on the pod, but he had a bet where he invested twenty five million, and it turned into two point seven billion. And that was in that 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 holding company that I'm an investor in. Oh my gosh, that is so funny. Um, um, but so back to the networking yeah, stuff. I got distracted. The, the pay the payoff is that's so cool. I mean, obviously for business, it's great. You surround. I I really believe you're you're the sum of the five or ten of you know best friends or most interesting people around you. So I think it influences you really positively. Um, but the cool thing that that's happened is now it compounds. So now I don't actually do cold emails very often. I don't really like consciously network. I just naturally every week or two, I get introduced to someone really interesting. And so now it's this like, uh, I planted the garden and now I'm enjoying the fruits from it. My issue is I don't really want to talk to people like that much. Uh, like you and I text message. Um, and I'm okay with text. Like I'll text like there's like 10 people who I'll text. Uh, you're one of them. It's like, other than that, I like, I really don't want to talk to anyone. And it kind of actually stresses me out because I don't, it doesn't trust me out because in one regard, it doesn't trust me out because I don't want to talk to people. Like I, I really only want like a small group and I only want to be with them. Um, and like, you're, you're one of those people where I'll, well, I'll just text you and be like, Hey, did you see the new, 9/11 get released or like we just bullshit right we don't we won't talk about work we just talk about uh just bought this car does this is this, this check out this video listen to it it's cool um but then i feel left out because i'm like i'm like Sean does this a lot Sean networks with everyone and he gets access to all this cool stuff and i'm like i want that access 
but I don't want to spend the time talking to these people because I just get nervous or well, like you have the ultimate, you have the ultimate hack though, which is you, you have this platform, right? I've started realizing this too. There's a reason I come on. I, I have a lot of fun talking to you guys, but at the same time, there's 10,000 people listening and a whole More bunch of them are now. super fascinating. And they're going to email both of us and say, Hey dude, I'd love to do something with you uh, or whatever. So we just bypassed, you know, 10, the problem with networking is you do five boring calls and then one amazing one, right? So you're constantly talking to people you don't necessarily want to talk to where they don't turn out to be that interesting when you think they will be. Um, but it's worth it because there's a diamond in the rough. And I think podcasting is interesting because it lets you... You basically have like 10,000 people who kind of learn what you're about and they can either decide if they like you or not. And if they opt in and they like you, you've already pre you've pre like sold them almost, right? Like when I get on the phone with someone fresh, I actually tell a story about like, this is how I started and this is my company and this is what we do. And it's all kind of, it's all not a sales pitch, but it's really like, hey, here's who I am. And you can just bypass all of that via a podcast or something. Yeah, it, I, I hear you. And I, what I usually, when I'll talk to people, I'll be like, I'll be like, hey, I don't want to be pretentious or anything, but like, do you know who I am? Um, <laughs> yeah. Because like I can save us time and I won't like do the spiel. Uh, they're like, oh, I listen to the podcast. I'm like, sick. I'm not going to tell you anything. What's going on? How are you? Um, the the other day I had this guy named Michael Loeb. Do you know who Michael Loeb is? Yeah, he um he has a incubator, like a big big incubator. His house is the house in billions, the Hamptons house. Yeah, so I like this guy. I, I don't know him other than the few minutes that I just talked to him, but I knew about him and I actually admire what I read about him. He started this thing called Synapse, I think, which he sold to Meredith some or Time Magazine for uh, $800 million. Then with that money, he started Priceline. Uh, he started it with this guy named Jay Walker. And I think they sold that for billions of dollars. And I think it was the fastest time anyone has ever made a billion dollars. Like from... Mm-hmm launched to like the sale or the the public markets it was like uh like a year or something like stupidly crazy he got made all of his money there bought this huge house in the hamptons which if you watch the tv show billions axelrod bobby axelrod buys this house for like a hundred million dollars like something crazy and it's like the whole point is it's supposed to be like the the representation of greed and and too much money and that's the house that he buys well that's michael loeb's house and (laughs) A couple of years ago, he there was this party or a charity actually, a charity event, and they raised like three hundred fifty thousand dollars for this event. But one of his sons uh, has a friend over who gets drunk and says something smart to him, so Michael punches him in the face and gets arrested. So he's got this. If you Google Michael Loeb arrested, you'll see his mugshot. He's got like a white T-shirt on, like they clearly like pulled him out of bed. He, and, and so anyway, so, and they found out that you know Michael Loeb is like this rich guy, so the dad of the son probably sued him. Yada yada yada. Well, anyway. He heard, he didn't, but one of his assistants, someone must make a list of every young entrepreneur who sold the company. And they send you this email from Michael. And it's like, hey, I'm Michael Loeb. I'm such a fan. Um, and like, I know this guy's like 60 something years old. It does, I'm like, I don't think this is you, but that's cool. Like, it's your assistant. And he goes, hey, um, let's talk. So I talked to him and I could tell he doesn't know who I am. And it's, it's no big deal. He wasn't, he didn't, it wasn't like a disrespect or anything, but uh, I was honored that he even reached out or his people did. And he's like, so I'm thinking about hosting this event for entrepreneurs. Are you, are you interested in coming? I'm like, dude, I, I'm not going to be pretentious here. I'm sorry if I come off that way, but like, you're talking to like the guy. Uh, I host these things called hustle con. I do this. I got this podcast thing. I've got this email thing. Like, 
I've got your target demographic. And he goes, yeah, well, like I'm wanting to host an event at my house. Have you seen, have you heard of my house? I go, yeah, I've heard of your house. Obviously I've heard of your house. It's like the house. And I'm trying to convince him now to make me a co-host. And I don't think he's gonna make me a co-host, but I hope he'll invite me to come to his house in the Hamptons where he wants to have like 50 or 100 young entrepreneurs. And I have a feeling what this guy does is he owns this thing called Loeb Enterprises. And I think he owns 100% of it. And it's very much like Tiny, where they invest a small sum of money into interesting ideas. And they'll co-own the business with the entrepreneur starting it. um, Or they'll own it wholly and give the entrepreneur a salary. And they build up these companies and then they eventually sell them. And they've had some great success. They built up... I think this thing called Script Relief uh, did $100 a year in profit. they built up a bunch of interesting things, but related to networking, that that's my networking story. And maybe I'll be hanging out with Michael Loeb and whoever he hangs out with. I don't know who he hangs that's out so with. That's so cool. I want to invite to that event. That sounds awesome. I got when you. we got we got introduced to him when we were in New York last time. So Chris and I go to his office and uh, he's like an old school Very almost old school. like almost like a car salesman, right? Like yes. we sit down. And he's like, hi, guys, I'm Michael Loeb. And uh, he pulls out a slide deck, but it's not on a screen. It's literally a printed slide deck. And he goes, he doesn't know this, is my, about this is my story. He has no idea who I am. He just like goes through this slide deck and he starts going line by line about it. And uh, I, I, I've, I thought it was really charming and he seemed like a cool guy, but it was crazy. Like he definitely has like a, a shtick and he, he has like a system for this stuff. Um, and w- it was really interesting because his house is like crazy. Right, like I've, I haven't been to it, but I've seen photos and you know watched it on billions. You go to his office and you're like, oh, it's just like a New York office, right? I saw Some his random office in the crappy background. office. It's like chaos. There's like you know weird desks everywhere and like and shitty chairs and disgusting well, carpet. It's funny, like seeing, um, you know, these in New York, you can be the richest person in the world, but it's like you still have to ride the subway. You're still, you still, you still have a cramped office. All this other stuff. It's funny. Yes, I saw he videoed me and I could see in his office and it looked like uh, all of his employees were at home except for his crew. And he clearly had like this very stereotypical, like I didn't actually see this woman, but this is like I I could kind of tell that this person was in the background. This very typical like 50 year old secretary who he's had for like 30 years who like I could just imagine her with her flats and like dress on handing him coffee. And like she's this nice lady. I just like everything about him fit the stereotype. And frankly, I loved it. I think this guy's yeah. incredibly interesting. Uh, is Loeb Enterprises, is that, I think they're really legit. They've created a couple of really interesting things. Yeah, I mean, it's very legit. And it's one of those things where you you go in and he's like, oh, we've got, you know, this company and this company and this company. And, you know, one of them sends wine direct, you know, direct mail wine. And the other one does like receipts. And you take a photo of your receipt and send it. And you're you're kind of going like... I don't know what the BS is versus what the big businesses are. Like they throw a lot of spaghetti against the wall and they incubate a lot of businesses. And like you said, they have an amazing track record of making some of these big businesses. Um, but uh, but yeah, he's he's a total character. Yes, that guy is crazy interesting. I'm so happy I got to talk to that guy. Um, I, I have another meeting with those folks. Um, um, and I'm looking forward to talking to him. And if I host that dinner... Or even if I get to attend the dinner and he lets me invite people, I'm going to invite you because inviting you and a few other people, that's like maybe that's like how I'm going to look legit to this person. Um, Super fascinating. Uh I feel like I can rule the world. I know I could be what I want to. Uh, I put my all in 
it like no days off. On the road, let's travel, never looking back. Like oh, yeah. 